0: I have two readings, Genesis, first chapter, and then we'll look at uh, Revelation 21. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And Then Revelation chapter 21, beginning our series in the book of Revelation. And um, just looking at some of the themes that are going into this, but uh, beginning to read at verse 1. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we dig into this and other scriptures, that you would be pleased to help us to understand the incredible plan that you have started an eternity past that you will accomplish an eternity a future. And we pray that uh, as we uh, seek to find our role and our place in this great grand scheme that you have put together, that uh, you would fill us with a holy zeal, a holy joy, and a holy determination to do all that you have called us to. And We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I find it interesting that two of the biggest Evangelical debates that uh, you find going on today are in the first book of the Bible and in the last book of the Bible. Okay? Uh, one of the raging debates in Christian circles is the creation debate and almost all denominations, both liberal and evangelical, have been impacted by this negatively. Uh, For 1,800 years, the church was quite satisfied to believe, and it was near 100% unanimity, that God created the world in six days and all very good. But with the coming of Charles Darwin, uh, there were many Christians who began to compromise on this doctrine. Now, in liberal churches, uh, you know, they don't have any question about what Genesis 1 teaches. They just don't believe it. They say Genesis 1 teaches that the world was created in six days, uh, and it's wrong. <laughs> we, uh, science has disproved that. But evangelical scholars who have bought into the conclusions of ancient earth and or theistic evolution, uh, it, even though it seems like Genesis 1 is wrong to them, they don't want to exactly say that, and they probably don't believe it. And so they're trying to harmonize Genesis 1 Uh, together with science, but when they do that, they don't question science. They treat that as infallible. Instead, they question the interpretation of Genesis uh, chapter 1, and they've come up with all kinds of strange theories that twist the text of Scripture, and every one of these theories tries to insert 15 billion years into a record that looks like it's seven days long. Uh, The pre-Genesis gap theory inserts 15 billion years before Genesis 1, verse 1. The gap theory inserts 15 billion years between verses 1 and 2. The multiple gap theory inserts uh, 15, you know, many billions of years. Uh, between each literal uh, day and they say okay there was a literal day and then there was a, a, several billion years and then there was another literal day and several billion years and then the day age theory tries to make each of the days actually not being literal days but days that are millions or billions of years long and you can s- kind of see what's going on here it's not exegesis that is driving this it's secular cosmology that is driving their exegesis and making them a twist uh, the scripture. And you can see uh, quite a number of different um, compromising theories, like the two register cosmology theory, which Meredith Klein says he invented for the sole purpose of protecting science from exegesis of Genesis chapter 1. Let me read you the first three sentences of his. Uh, and this has influenced so many scholars and so many different denominations. But he says, to rebut the literalist interpretation of the Genesis creation week propounded by the young earth crea- theorists is a central theme or concern of this article. At the same time, the exegetical evidence adduced also refutes the harmonistic day age view. The conclusion is that the scientist is left free of biblical constraints in hypothesizing about cosmic origins. He says, the whole purpose of writing this article is to make it clear that, quote, the scientist is left free of biblical constraints. But of course, that's exactly what these other theories are trying to, uh, to do. Um, there's theories like moderate concordism, the pictorial day theory, the dream theory, progressive creationism, the framework hypothesis, and I've got a listing of 21 different weird theories out there that are trying to reconcile 15 billion years uh, with this record and it's enough to make the average head spin. Some of them are extremely complicated theories. Be on guard against any teaching that doesn't make sense until you close the Bible, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Um, And it really doesn't have to apply to creationism. It can apply to any area of uh, theology uh, you know, you need to be on guard if you're reading in a passage and say, wow, that sure seems like patriarchy. And then you read your famous, uh, your favorite feminist article and you read that and say, oh, yeah, the Bible's really feminist. And then you open up the Bible again and say, whoa, wow, that's confusing. That sure looks like patriarchy. Well, quit closing the book, right? Quit closing uh, the, the, the Bible. Uh, be on guard against any teaching, whether it's the weird views of creationism, feminism, eschatology, law, gospel, whatever, that uh, doesn't make sense unless you close the Bible and just read their book. There is something perverse about the notion that you cannot understand the Bible unless you read it through the secret grid of Expert A. And actually one scholar told me, Hey, uh, the, the grids of experts A, B, C, and D are all equally valid. The only thing that he was offended by was my statement that is quite obvious that God made the world in six days. He was dogmatic that I could not be dogmatic, okay? But that is to rob the children of their spiritual food. Christ said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He didn't intend the Bible to be only read by experts, and that includes the book of Revelation, okay? Be skeptical of anything that doesn't make sense until you just close the Bible and read what they're doing. If you open the Bible, you get confused again. Okay, there's something wrong going on there. Let the Scripture interpret the Scripture. Paul praised the Bereans for checking out everything that he taught from the Scriptures. Everything. Well, that implies that Paul was glad that they had an open book, and it implies he believed they could understand what the Bible had to say, right? So, if it's properly taught, as Paul properly taught it, people ought to be able to understand it. Well, over the next couple of years, we're going to be going verse by verse through the book of Revelation, and it is a book that has far more interpretations of it than Genesis 1 through 2 do. Thankfully, the Apostle uh, John uh, really helps us out. In the first 11 uh, verses of Revelation 1, he gives us a whole bunch of rules of interpretation so that we won't get messed up. And we're going to be spending probably a couple of weeks looking at those uh, hints that he gives us of where he's going. By the way, he ends the book with some how-to-read-the-book ideas and hints uh, as well. But those uh, verses are very foundational, and if you really take those first 11 verses seriously, it's instantly going to weed out a whole bunch, dozens of false interpretations of the book of Revelation. Now today I want to look at Genesis and Revelation and how they fit together. They form bookends for the Bible, and the two books cover almost every subject known to man. Genesis shows the beginnings and shows the mess that happened uh, to those beginnings. And Revelation shows the transformation that redemption brings to this old planet, progressively restoring it and eventually producing a new heavens and a new earth at the second coming of Christ. It's really a beautiful finale to the beginning of the Bible. Revelation finishes what Genesis begins. Now, that brings up the need for this introductory sermon. I already mentioned that there are all kinds of differing views of Genesis chapter uh, 1 that try to insert billions of years into that history. Well, there's a brand new theory that does the same thing, and it has been concocted by full preterists to kind of reconcile their interpretation of Revelation with the language of uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1. And now the ancient earthers are saying, Oh, goody, there is another one. They're piling onto this theory. The other theories don't work out so well. Let's, let's try this new theory. And let me explain, first of all, what full preterism is. Over the next couple of years, we're going to be interacting with quite a few different views on Revelation. And I want to make it as crystal clear as I can the distinction between my view of partial preterism and the heretical view of full preterism. Okay, if you have studied grammar, you know that the preterist tense is the past tense of a verb. The preterist tense. So, preterism refers to prophecies that have been fulfilled in the past, like Christ's birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. Uh, Christ is not going to be crucified in the future because that's a preterist, a past tense uh, prophecy. It was fulfilled in the past. Now, all Orthodox Christians are partial preterists on the Bible as a whole. Okay, uh, if they believe that the Messiah was born, lived, died, and rose again, they're partial preterists. Some prophecy has already been fulfilled. But where the term full preterist versus partial preterist is important is not on the Bible as a whole because that doesn't really distinguish a whole lot. It it comes into play on specific passages of Scripture. For example, I am a partial preterist when it comes to Matthew 24 through 25. That's the Olivet Discourse because I believe only the first 36 verses of chapter 24 have been fulfilled. All of the rest is way off into the future whereas full preterists say no every bit of Matthew 24 through 25 has been fulfilled including the last judgment and and including the separation of the sheep and the goats and of casting them into hell and the others into to heaven that's all been fulfilled in the past i am a partial preterist when it comes to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians because each of those books has some references to the second coming Full preterists say 100% of First and Second Thessalonians has been fulfilled in the past. I'm a partial preterist when it comes to 1 Corinthians 15. They aren't. When it comes to Revelation, I believe that the first 19 chapters of Revelation refer to something that was uh, primarily uh, uh, in the past, and yet the last uh, chapters uh, deal with a lot of things that are yet future, And yet the full preterist would say, no, 100% of the book of Revelation was fulfilled in the year 70 A.D. So it's on those passages where the the terms full preterist versus partial preterist uh, come, come to play. So hopefully it helps you to understand the definition of terms. Now, most Orthodox Christians agree with full preterists that 70 A.D. is a very, very important date. It was the closing of the Old Covenant age. Hebrews 8, verse 13 says that the New Covenant, quote, has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews was written in 66 A.D. and within three and a half years the temple would be destroyed with the priesthood, sacrifices, ceremonial law, all of the other distinctively Levitical, distinctively Jewish things that were associated with the Old Covenant that were done away with. Okay? Never again to be uh, resurrected. It was ready to vanish away. So Hebrews and many other books in the New Testament indicate that 70 A.D. is very critically important. But these full preterists claim that the Bible says nothing about history after 70 A.D. In fact, they go further. They say there is no... Prophecy in the whole Bible that is yet to be fulfilled. There's no future second coming. That happened in 70 AD, they say. They say there's no future resurrection of our bodies. Now, the New Testament's quite clear a coming of Christ in judgment spiritually did happen in 70 AD. We're not questioning that at all, but he did not physically, with his body, come down to planet Earth. That's the second coming. That's yet future. And in recent years, a whole bunch of evangelical evolutionists and full preterists have joined forces and they've developed resources on the web to teach people about this marvelous hermeneutics that can help you to understand not only Revelation and Genesis, but a lot of other passages in the Scripture as well. Some people call this uh, new hermeneutics, they call it covenant creation, some call it Genesis apocalypse and there are some other uh, labels for it. But the upshot of this theory is that Genesis 1 is actually not talking about the creation of the physical universe at all. Uh, the, the cynic in me, you know, says, uh, you know, why in the world would they be holding to something so weird a, as this? They say that the trees, the sun, the moon, the fish, those are all apocalyptic symbols of the Old Covenant. It's setting up the Jewish Old Covenant and revelations about the deconstruction of the Jewish old covenant, why would they believe something so obviously wrong? Uh, the cynic in me says okay it's the, um, it 's the it 's the you know the evangelical uh, 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 old agers who are desperately trying to hold on to a system of science, and uh, the evangelical full preterists who are desperately trying to hold on to a a system of eschatology. They're not driven by their exegesis. They are driven by their system that they were trying to read into the Scripture. But they claim that's not true. That's not true, Phil. They say that they are driven by the text of Scripture and by hermeneutics to this position. They say this is actually in Genesis chapter 1 and actually the whole book of Genesis and Revelation, it's a totally different kind of literature. And what kind of literature do they believe that the text really is? Well, they claim that both Genesis and Revelation are apocalyptic literature. Okay, you've probably heard that term. And unfortunately, even good evangelicals throw that term around a little bit too uh, loosely. Anyway, uh, these full preterists and these evolutionists say that we need to interpret both Genesis and Revelation by the rules that govern apocalyptic literature. And here is the problem. Apocalyptic literature was literature developed by heretical Gnostics whom the ancient Jews rejected. It is the writings of rank heretics. And anybody who reads this literature recognizes the rank heresy that's strewn all through. Even full preterists acknowledge it. You know, it's pseudepigrapha. It's heretical pseudepigrapha. They they acknowledge that. And actually I need to define terms here. Pseudepigrapha ...is a word that means falsely attributed writings. I know of no apocalyptic book that does not start with a bold-faced lie. Okay, that's important to understand. Uh, For example, it it, it states that it was written by so-and-so when it really wasn't. Uh, We've got uh, pseudepigrapha that claims to have been written by Adam and Eve... And uh, we say not, and even the full preterists would acknowledge, yeah, I know, it's not written by uh, by Adam and Eve, but it still shows us what the Jews, the way that they, they think. And so you've got... Um, other books written by Adam and Eve supposedly, like the Apocalypse of Adam, and then you've got the Treatise of the Great Seth, and the Books of Enoch, and the Book of Melchizedek, and Abraham, and Asenath, and the Assumption of Moses, and a whole bunch of books that are called pseudopigrapha for a reason. They are pseudo. They are false writings, right? Now, here's the reason I bring all of this up. The pseudopigrapha is the only place that you can go to to find these so-called rules of interpreting apocalyptic language. And you need to understand this, because even evangelicals are buying into this apocalyptic literature idea. Even some partial preterists are doing so. The book of Revelation is quite different from apocalyptic literature. Quite different. And we'll look at that next week, uh, Lord willing. And uh, it's quite different than... Uh, than Genesis. Anyway they claim that we need to read the Jewish writings as a Jew would using Jewish rules of interpretation. Now in a sense I agree with them. I agree with them but I disagree that the pseudepigrapha was the way that the Jews read the Bible. They didn't. They treated those people as Gnostic heretics. Okay? In contrast we believe that the scripture interprets the scripture. You don't impose a hermeneutic from outside the Bible onto the Bible. And too many systems of thought do this, not just in eschatology. They do it in, in many other areas of theology as well. They come up with these creative ideas. They read those ideas into uh, the Bible. But in eschatology, it is certainly true. Um, it's one of the reasons why I ditched dispensationalism. Uh, years and years ago, I began to realize that the apostles and Christ were interpreting the Old Testament differently than I had been trained to interpret the Old Testament. You see, they teach us how to interpret the Bible. Now, at least dispensationalists are orthodox. You know, they, they're, uh, you know and, and they're in the same boat with us. They're fellow believers. Uh, full preterists are, uh, even though they may be uh, believers and call themselves evangelicals, they really have ditched what the church has historically said is the orthodox faith. Now, I can't get into all of the reasons why, but like a series of dominoes falling, when you hold to that view, other essential doctrines begin to fall. We saw several weeks ago that when you begin to uh, deny, when you begin to hold to full preterism, you're logically pressed to say wrong things about Christ's resurrection body and about our resurrection bodies. Uh, Actually, some of these people begin to question whether death came into the world. Uh, Most of them are beginning to question that, whether death came into the world as a result of Adam's fall. Some are even beginning to question whether Adam was a a real historical figure. Uh, There are... A full pred- Well, back in 1999, I um, predicted uh, a whole bunch of other things that would fall, one of which would be that they would be logically compelled to say that the law of God no longer applies in the Christian life. And you might wonder, well, why would that be? Well, Matthew 5 says, Jesus said, Till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle of the law will pass away till all is fulfilled. And they say, well, heaven and earth passed away in 70 A.D., And so the law of God has passed away, and most full preterists are holding to that. When you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what are you talking about, heaven and earth passed away? 2 Peter 3, verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That didn't happen. And they say, oh, yes, it did happen. You say, what are you talking about? Fervent heat burned up with a great noise? And they said, oh, yeah, this is just apocalyptic language. It's the exaggerated language used by the Gnostic. Well, they don't say Gnostic, but by the pseudophigrapha. They say the language of heaven and earth being burned up is just using heightened language to show how important the passing away of Israel really was. They claim it's just common Jewish hermeneutics. And my response is, no, it is not common hermeneutics amongst the Orthodox Jews, it was common hermeneutics amongst the heretical Gnostic Jews who learned from the Greeks to hate the physical creation, treat it as yucky, and, and be hoping and aspiring to escape from this body so that we can get into a pure spiritual state. And of course, many of these full preterists are Gnostics in their view of reality. Anyway, when you point out that Second Peter 3 shows that it's exactly the same earth that was created in Genesis 1, that was flooded with the great flood in Genesis 9 and destroyed by that flood, that will be reserved for fire and destroyed in the future, you know what their response is? I say, we agree with you, Phil. It is the same earth, but all three earths that are mentioned there are metaphorical. Okay? It's not talking about the physical creation that's created in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. It's not talking about a literal flood covering all the literal mountains. That's ridiculous. And so in the future, it's the same metaphorical earth. It's, not, it's describing the doing away with the old covenant. It's not doing away uh, and, and reforming uh, the physical uh, nature. And it's sad that we even have to deal with such false doctrines, but that's what God calls us to do in Jude. Jude 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, and he proceeds to write against the very Gnostics of these modern evangelical ancient earthers and these modern evangelical full preterists are reading for their hermeneutics, okay? Okay. Now, I will say that the full preterists are right that there is a strong, strong connection between Genesis and Revelation. Everybody agrees with that. Where they are wrong is similar to where Harold Camping goes wrong, and that is to ignore the plain meaning of the text and try to dig deeper and and get the gospel. That's the important thing. And as a result of ignoring the plain meaning, trying to insert the gospel in there, they are missing out on the foundations for all of life. Let me just first of all give you some hints of how comprehensive the connections between Genesis and Revelation are. And this will be just a tiny, tiny uh, preview. Then I'll go through some of the same passages, show that they all give us wisdom for life. And what Genesis starts in infancy, Revelation will accomplish in maturity. In the book of Revelation, we're going to be seeing uh, you know, such practical things of how God destroys and makes war against statism and against centralized banking and against other demonic strongholds, and he replaces them with something far, far better. Let's just poke around in in Genesis a little bit. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what do the last chapters of Revelation deal with? They deal with a new heavens and a new earth, right? Right? Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea yet. And yet, Revelation 20 through 22 shows that there's some connection between the old heaven and the old earth. It's a renovation, and of course, that's exactly what Romans 8 says. Romans 8 says this current. Physical creation is groaning and travailing, waiting for its own redemption, which corresponds with the redemption of our bodies. And it points out that just as there is some connection between our old bodies and the far more glorious resurrection body, there is some connection between this old creation and a far more glorious renovated uh, creation. But this brand of full preterism, and not all full preterists hold to this, by the way, but this brand of full preterism, they're not interested in that. They don't care about the physical creation in Genesis 1. They are Gnostics, okay? But the verse I just read from Revelation had a reference to no more sea. And that stands in contrast to verses 2 and 6 of Genesis 1. See, when God made the heavens and the earth at the beginning, the earth was nothing but sea, It was one gigantic, shoreless ocean, right? And yet, at the end of time, he says, it's going to be without uh, a sea. Very, very interesting. Though verse 1 shows a beginning to time, mass, space, continuum that God created, Revelation shows that there will be no end to it. There is a beginning, but there will be no end. And as I go through the verses again in a little bit, I'm going to show that there's no end to time either. We will always be creatures who are subject to time, mass, space, continuum. But redemption will impact all of those things in astounding ways. Genesis 1 verse 2, "...the earth was without form and void, or empty." Revelation shows paradise restored and an incredible beauty in the earth. The earth filled with righteousness, filled with the knowledge of the Lord. It's no longer void. It's no longer empty. Uh, Genesis 1 verse 2, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Now, Revelation ends with the final manifestation of the new heavens and the new earth, still having darkness, and I'll demonstrate that when we get to that book on, on another Sunday, still having darkness... But there is no darkness in the New Jerusalem, since God will be its light. In fact, the first source of light in Genesis was the Spirit of God hovering over the waters as the glory cloud. It wasn't until day four that God put light, light bearers to give creaturely light. But God Himself was the light in the first uh, first three days, and He's going to be the light. In eternity in Revelation 21 through 22. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 2 continues. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in the next verses, that Spirit is energizing this planet, turning it from something ugly and unformed into something that is a beautiful earth, just as in the book of Revelation it's darkness, it's demonic, there's evil, there's all kinds of fighting against Christ and against His people at the beginning of the kingdom. But what is the Spirit of God doing? He's working in the church and through the church. He's working in this world, gradually bringing this creation and transforming it and bringing beauty and freedom and dominion and glory out of the ashes. And the book ends with the Holy Spirit giving an invitation to anyone to come to the living waters that bring this kind of change. It is the gospel that changes that, and with that we agree, but we go way further than they do in terms of their definition of the gospel, and we show how extensive the gospel really is. Jesus has to redeem even the physical creation because it was impacted by the fall. God will take away thorns and thistles. He will take away death, and yet In contrast, many of these full preterists say, "Oh, death was natural. It didn't come into the world as a result of Adam's fall. It was here for billions of years before Adam's fall. And they want to die to get rid of what one guy called our carbon-based bodies. It's a Gnostic view of redemption. It flies in the face of all Jewish orthodoxy and the history of all Christian orthodoxy. And I won't take the time to show all of the other parallels between Genesis and Revelation, But I do think that Chilton's book, Paradise Restored, gives a very nice introduction. But I will hasten to give one little correction, one little caveat to that statement, that endorsement of Chilton's book... And that is, yes, I agree with him that the material in Genesis produces all kinds of symbols in the book of Revelation, but that does not mean that those symbols do not have a literal earthly reference. Too frequently, orthodox, good, partial preterists take an either-or approach. It's either literal or it is a symbol. Oh, no, it doesn't have to be either-or. For example the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness, was it literal or was it simply a symbol? We say, well, it's obviously both. It was a literal rock in the wilderness that was a symbol of of the the striking of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have to be either or, it can be both and. And uh, we're going to be seeing in the book of Revelation that God literally causes things to happen to the sun and moon in 70 A.D., and to the land and the water in miraculous ways. Why? To show the massive changes that are taking place as the old covenant is completely ushered out and the new covenant it begins to, 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 to grow. You see, the new covenant started in 30 A.D. The old covenant ended in 70 A.D., but there is this 40-year transition That's a very important transition that Hebrews uh, talks about. But anyway, those symbols in Revelation are still literal historical realities. And all you have to do is open up the history books of the first century. These are histories written by Jews and Romans who were eyewitnesses of that seven-year tribulation. And you will see that the sun literally did turn dark without a lunar eclipse right in the middle of the day, pitch black. And the sun very literally did turn, red blood, uh, uh, blood red, I should say. And um, there were literal signs in the heavens like a sword that hung over Jerusalem for months on end. And there were literal earthquakes and literal blood up to the horse's bridles in the Jordan River. And uh, there was literal fire and blood falling out of the sky and just making the the, the 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 ground gross. I mean, the Roman historians, they tell you about this. They were freaked out by it. They didn't know what in the world was going on. Uh, but anyway, they literally happened. But they were also prefiguring a, in the spiritual realm something massive that had changed. It's not either or, it's both and. And I think that Chilton, Bonson, and Moorcraft sometimes miss that as good and as wonderful as their books and their tapes are. But what I I want to show now is that God created the very physical universe that the Gnostics so detested. And he called this physical universe good. He called cockroaches and trees and fish and birds good. Now some full preterists will say, Why would I even want this body back? I hate this body. Why would I want a renovated earth? Okay, they're Gnostics in their view uh, of redemption, and yet we say we want it back because God declared it to be good, right? And the fall impacted it in in Genesis chapter 3, and redemption is going to impact the same thing. As the Christian hymn, Joy to the World, words it, God's grace will transform this world far as the curse is found. And the apocalyptic interpretation of Genesis misses out on the enormous extent to which Genesis speaks, and therefore the enormous reach of the gospel to even physics. Henry Morris delights in pointing out that the book of Genesis is the foundation for every discipline known to man, for education, science, economics, mathematics, you name it. I think one of the best uh, books that I've read of Gary North's On economics is actually his commentary on Genesis. He's written a bunch of fabulous economics commentaries, but boy, that commentary has got some really, really interesting stuff in it. Genesis is absolutely key to understanding geology, and of course, the creation science movement has done a fabulous job of drawing out some of those implications. Gordon Clark wrote a book on the philosophy of linguistics and the bankruptcy of humanistic approaches to that discipline, and if you don't have Genesis, linguistics is a mystery, okay? Um, Without Genesis, the disciplines are led down blind alleys, dead ends, false turns. Genesis shows the origin for the universe, order and complexity, life, marriage, sin, clothing. Yeah, even things like clothing. Why do we wear clothes? Genesis tells you why we wear clothes. It even defines what is modest clothing and what is not modest clothing, Um. Genesis gives fascinating insights on the study of government, culture, nations, sales, management, so many other things. And to me, it's a tragedy that so many people translate the whole New Testament without ever translating the book of Genesis. You don't understand the New Testament without Genesis. The, The two have got to go together. When you begin to realize how much is at stake in the book of Genesis, you can understand why Satan has done everything in his power to discredit that book. So that we will not believe it. It is a book that we should not neglect. And Revelation is a book that we should not neglect. And what I want to do for the remainder of the sermon is to just skim through a few key concepts that set the tone for the rest of the Bible. Let's uh, do Genesis 1-1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we're off to a fantastic contradiction to modern science right off the bat. Uh, because uh, atheistic science said that there was no beginning for time, space, and matter. This says there was, okay? Modern scientists say no. Time's always been there. Space has always been there. Uh, Matter has always been there. But uh, think about those first three words, in the beginning. Now, if God was subject to time like we are, And there are theologians, by the way, who have uh, said that. Uh, Oliver Buswell was one of the better ones. You got the openness of God theology people who are way worse. Uh, Openness of God theology people say God cannot know the future except for what he generally plans, but he can make mistakes. He cannot foreknow the future. Why? Because he is subject to time. Time is an attribute of God. That is heresy. It's rank heresy. Only creatures are subject to time. It's one of the key things that distinguishes us from God. Anyway, the term beginning is meaningless unless time itself was created. One commentator rendered it, "In any beginning to have been begun, God was there. <laughs> he, he was already there. God created time, and all of creation will be forever subject to time. Now, when you get to Revelation, you're going to read some commentaries uh, that will say on one of the phrases in there, the the King James renders it, and time will be no more, and they've interpreted it, huh, we'll no longer be subject to time at that point. Well, that's not what the Greek means, and it's not what the King James originally meant either. What the King James and what the Greek for sure means is that time has run out for you to repent. It's too late now. Judgment's coming. Judgment's imminent. That's what it means. And Revelation 20 through 22 goes on to make it crystal clear, we will always be subject and experiencing a succession of moments and a succession of days. In fact, right in those chapters it says, day and night forever, day and night forever, day and night forever. We're always going to have time existing, and it's very, very important for understanding our place in this world. Now, at that beginning point of time, God made two other things. This is a really key point of theology. He made the heavens and the earth. And I want you to notice there, it's heavens plural. Now, in Hebrew thought, there were three heavens. First, heaven was the atmosphere that the birds fly in, okay, and that the clouds are in. The second heaven was space into which on day four the stars are going to be placed, but there has to be space on day one into which the world and everything else can be placed. And in the third heaven is the place of God's abode, His throne room, the place where the angels are. Okay, this is very important to to understand. Uh, Later on in the Scripture, it says that uh, the angels were made along with this third heaven on day 1 they saw god making the foundation of the earth and as they're watching the rest of the things that god speaks into existence on day 1 they are rejoicing and praising god singing for joy and they watch the rest of this creation now in genesis 3 it speaks of a fall into sin and into corruption And other scriptures indicate that this was the time at which one-third of all of the angels fell into sin. They followed Lucifer, and they rebelled, and they came into corruption as well. Now, here's, here's where it gets really interesting. In the Old Testament, those demons had access to heaven. All three heavens, actually. They had access to the third heaven you wonder, why would God have allowed that? But they had access to the third heaven. Uh, The demons go before the council of God in heaven. All the other angels are there, and these demons come along. And they accuse Job. Satan accuses Job. He's called the accuser of the brethren. There's other scriptures that talk about these demons who have access to the third heaven. So in terms of bookends, Revelation says that demons were not cast out of heaven until the old covenant was ended. Revelation 12, verse 6, describes the three-and-a-half-year war leading up to 70 A.D., and in that context, the next verse shows a war between Michael and his angels, those are the good guys, Satan and his angels, the good angels win, they cast all of the demons out of heaven, cast them to the earth, and from that time on, they have been restricted to the earth. And we're going to be looking in more detail at that exciting transition when we get to Revelation uh, chapter 12. But I bring this up here to show that even heaven had to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Okay? Because demons had access there. It had to be cleansed. Revelation 12 verse 10 says that prior to that first century event, those demons accused the brethren before God's throne. It says, day and night, just like Satan accused Job. So heaven was cleansed, and the point is that there isn't anything in this entire universe that doesn't have to be either redeemed by God's grace or destroyed by His wrath. So Revelation 12 shows a marvelous transition because now for the first time in post-fall human history, God's will is perfectly being done in heaven, perfectly. There are no more imperfect beings, no demons in heaven anymore. Now, what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How perfectly is God's will being done in heaven? Perfectly. So what we are doing in that astounding prayer is we are saying, Lord, we want your majestic kingdom, your perfect kingdom to be invading planet earth, to come into earth more and more, to be transforming this earth Uh, into the image of your Son, and we want your will that is perfectly being done in heaven to be done more and more on earth just as it is in heaven. That's a glorious, glorious prayer that we can be praying, and that's the trajectory of the book of Revelation. The trajectory of sin in Genesis is to defile everything, including heaven, The trajectory of the gospel and revelation is that it cleanses everything, including heaven and earth. Is this not exciting stuff? I mean, for me, I just get goosebumps when I look at stuff like this. So the first heaven, the second heaven, the third heaven, they're all created in Genesis chapter 1. They serve man in Genesis chapter 2. They are corrupted by the fall in Genesis chapter 3. They are promised to be restored in the remaining chapters of Genesis and the last book of the Bible shows that grace reaches and transforms it all. This is in such stark contrast to the Gnosticism of full preterism that minimizes the importance of the physical creation. It is important. God declared it all good in Genesis 1. He will make it all perfectly good in Revelation chapter 22. In any case, Henry Morris points out that Genesis 1, verse 1, talks about God's creation of the space, mass, time, universe. And this verse is therefore the foundation for science. When you understand how intimately involved in each other those three components are, and how you cannot understand the one without understanding the others and their relationship, this verse is very, very scientifically profound. But scientific process of discovery and dominion itself gets corrupted in Genesis 3 and following, and science needs to be redeemed, and the last chapters of Revelation shows that we're going to be taking dominion, and there are hints we're going to be even engaging in science and uh, engineering, probably, and stuff like that throughout eternity. So are you beginning to catch a glimpse that there are all of these interconnections between Genesis and Revelation? He goes on to say in Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, it, it probably should be mem- mentioned that even though starting a sentence with and is not grammatically proper in English, even though those grammars are beginning to change and people do it all the time, in Hebrew it's perfectly proper, okay? They, they start with and all the time, and the special grammatical use of the ands that occur over and over in Genesis chapter one is called the wow consecutive w a w, wow consecutive because the the Hebrew word wow is and right but this particular use of the and is a grammatical form called the wow consecutive which means this is a historical sequence, and um, means this happened then this happened now why is that important well it contradicts most of the false views of creation uh, like the day age theory. It means that verse 1 is not a title that describes everything that happened in chapter 1 as the day agers claim. It's not a different definition of the word day. They say, hey, verse 1 starts off with a a view of day that's more than one day. It includes everything that happened in the the first seven days. I say, no, it's not. The wow consecutive shows verse 1 happened, then verse 2 happened, then verse 3 happened. It's not a summary of everything that happens in that chapter. And so that wow consecutive that goes all through this chapter shows this is standard history. It isn't apocalyptic. It isn't poetry. It isn't framework. It isn't dreams. It is history. The grammar shows that. Notice also that one of the first things that God created was darkness. Ain't you kids scared of darkness? God created it. He's in total control of it. But He created darkness. Scripture says God is light. So for there to be any darkness in existence at all before uh, in creation, God, it had to be created. Okay, Darkness is part of parcel of the created space, mass, time, universe. If God was all there was before day one, if there was no space or universe into which stars would be placed, then all that existed before Genesis 1 verse 1 was the perfect God full of light and glory. And so, Scripture doesn't say that God creates light. Instead it says God is light. He forms light. He is clothed in light. But He had to create darkness. Now, the, the, Greek, uh, the Hebrew word for create there is bara. It means to create out of nothing. Okay, out of nothing. There had never been darkness before verse 1. Uh, the And so, for darkness to be on the face of the deep, it had to be created, it had to have a good purpose, and it does. Now, other scriptures, like Isaiah 45, verse 7, let me quote that, God says, I form light, okay, so God's forming, He's he's taking light that's already in existence, He's just forming it, and create darkness, So he shapes the light that comes from him, but he created the darkness out of nothing. And it's a good thing that God created darkness because it protects us. It protects us. Scripture says we could not endure the brightness of God's presence for even a moment. We would be destroyed. So would the angels. The creation would flee away from his presence. God had to hide himself to some degree, obscure the light, and so the next verse shows God coming in a theophany. It's the only way God can safely appear to his creation. They would die otherwise. Last half of verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now we can't get into all of the details of this theophany, but there's an entire chapter written by Meredith Klein in his book, Images of the Spirit. He's written a bunch of garbage, but that's a particularly good book. And uh, many later scriptures indicate that what was happening here with the Spirit hovering over the waters, it's exactly the same Shekinah glory, that glory cloud that led Israel in the wilderness. That's what was going on. Verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. I want you to notice that unlike verses 14 through 16 of Genesis 1, where God gives light through sun, moon, and stars, in this verse it is God himself... Who gives the light to penetrate the darkness? Now, day agers and framework hypothesis people, all of these guys, they say, oh, that's nonsense. You couldn't have light if you didn't have the light bearers. Until there's a sun, you can't have light, so it's obviously poetry. It's not really talking about any historical realities. And we say, nonsense. God can give light without light bearers. And uh, examples would be in the plagues on Egypt. He, one of the plagues was to put darkness upon Egypt. All of the households of the Egyptians were in pitch darkness, but there was light in the dwellings of all of the Israelites. He's not talking about sun or candles or anything like that because it was a thick darkness that was over the Egyptians. It was a supernatural light that was in their midst, Exodus 10, verse 23. Uh, another example was God's Shekinah glory in the fiery pillar by the Red Sea, which gave darkness to the Egyptians gave light to Israel in Exodus chapters 13 and 14. Psalm 104 verse 2 describes this time when the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and it says He wraps Himself in light as with a garment. And so I believe this light was the Shekinah glory of God Himself hovering over the waters. Verse 4, "...and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day." Now, God is very, very careful to define His terms. The first time that the word day is used in this chapter, it's used to define it in a very literal way, just like we would use it. This is not strange apocalyptic, very general language describing the covenant. No, He clearly defines what He means, and He means a literal day. First, the word day is especially defined as the light portion of day and night cycle, just like we use it. And second, the whole cycle of evening-morning is called a day because the day portion of that cycle is what is particularly in mind, in God's uh, mind. And so day does not mean a geological period of millions and millions of years as day-agers say. God defines His terms to refer to ordinary, literal days of light or cycles of evening and morning. Now, what about the length of the day? Some people say that the first three days didn't have a sun to spin in front of, and so it could have been any length of time. And there's actually one theory that says, oh yeah, days four through seven are literal days, but days one through three, because there's no sun, are billions of years long. Now, we won't get into refuting all of that. I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. The orbit around the sun has nothing to do with day and night, okay? Okay? It takes a whole year to orbit around the sun. That has to do with seasons, okay? That's a year. That waits till chapter 4 when seasons begin. The tilt of the earth uh, has nothing to do with day and night. That has to do with seasons as well. That's in verse 4. Day and night is made by the spin of the earth on its axis, right? So one evening morning is one entire rotation. Of the earth on its axis. Now, you don't need the sun to do that. If God sets the earth spinning on its axis, you know, on day four, you've got the sun here and it's spinning past its axis. Well, if you've got a different light, you've got the Shekinah glory here and it's spinning on its axis, it's still spinning. Unless you're going to say God spun up the earth billions of times faster, you know, on day four. It's ridiculous to think there could be billions of years in the first three days. It was spinning. There was evenings, there was mornings, and there's nothing in the text to indicate anything other than 24-hour day periods. All you needed was a Shekinah glory uh, uh, cloud of God for uh, for the, the earth to spin past. Anyway, it all gives a clear picture that the word day is not meant to be a period of billions of years. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And by the way, chapter 2, verse 4 verifies that the heavens and the earth were made in one day. They try to say that's, again, a reference to the whole period. No. Heavens and the earth were made on day one. It is a literal usage of that term. Um, But in any case, time is created in this chapter... Chapter 3 shows the curse of sin upon time. Later chapters expand on that curse but promise a change with the Redeemer. And Revelation shows that grace itself will impact time so that it works for God's people instead of against God's people. Okay? Genesis and Revelation are in interplay in so many different ways. And I can't continue on with this because time is running out. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) But... This chapter goes on to talk about very tangible things like dry land, verse 9, grass, herbs, trees, verse 11, plants and stars, verses 14 and following, birds, verse 20, sea creatures, verse 21, various beasts, verses 21 through 25. And if you want what I consider to be one of the best analyses of what is going to happen to all of this in eternity, in the future, read Randy Alcorn's book, I think it's just called Heaven. Uh, Randy Elkhorn's book uh, book on heaven. Marvelous, marvelous uh, treatment. And he points out all through the Scripture, God has ordained that we're not going to be bodiless people who deal up in the clouds playing on, well, harps would be instruments that are pretty tangible, aren't they? We're going to be dealing with very tangible things, a very tangible creation. So God redeems what was lost. Satan does not actually win. Everything that Satan was able to grab at the fall is going to be wrested from him and out of his hands. But back to Genesis 1, verses just deal with one more thing here. Verses 26 through 28 show that God gave dominion over all of that to mankind. Now the question comes, what does it mean to take dominion? Was that impacted by the fall? And the answer is, of course it was. Does dominion need to be redeemed? Of course it does. Let me quote from D. James Kennedy and Dr. John Barber on what exactly is involved in the Dominion Mandate. They say the Dominion Mandate is God's call to Adam and his descendants to bring his truth and his will to bear on every sphere of our world and our society. It is an all-inclusive concept that extends to every sphere of life where man's mind and hands are employed to control and utilize the processes of nature for the good of all and the glory of God. The church must see in this command its role in shaping every area of life according to God's will, including politics, the fine arts, science, law, medical ethics, and more, unquote. So dominion involves stewardship, Study, exploration, managing, planning, rationing, apportioning, starting work, resting from work, categorizing, improving, using this creation to God's glory. We cannot be passive. That's what sin has caused us to do. We are just passive, but we cannot passively allow... Uh, the creation to order itself. That's the exact opposite of the dominion mandate. You know, some of us in, uh, that, uh, that are in the, the full quiver movement, we tend to be way too passive. You know, somebody has scarred fallopian tubes, and they say, oh, no, I've got to trust God on this. I can't go to the doctor to try to get pregnant. No, that's part of dominion. Of course you can do that. In fact, First Timothy 2.15 indicates that just as the curse affected uh, 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 things like um, uh, conception... Redemption affects things like conception. It's a marvelous verse, actually. In Genesis 2, God modeled to Adam how to take dominion. He showed Adam how to lead his family, to teach it, to employ his family in dominion. He showed him how to make and use a garden, how to systematize and categorize animals. And after he made the garden for Adam, he put Adam into the garden, not only to tend it and guard it, but to extend the garden out into the wilderness. And yes, there was wilderness in this perfect earth that God made. But he was supposed to take dominion, subdue it, extend the garden out to it. And Revelation picks up these themes of garden and wilderness to show that what Adam failed in, the second Adam, Jesus, would achieve. Can the Sahara Desert be reclaimed? I believe it can. And actually, there are people who are reclaiming the Sahara Desert year by year. It's just a remarkable story. If you've never read about it, you ought to read up on it. You've got countries like Israel that have taken barren land and turned it into incredibly beautiful, productive land, have taken swamps and made it livable, made it beautiful. And there's other countries that have done the same thing. Paradise lost will eventually become paradise restored, if not in history, at least after the second coming. But here's the point. No matter how you interpret that part, it is still not an escape from this world. Gnostics want to escape from the world. Revelation calls us to conquer the world, not to escape. It is the kingdom of heaven invading the world and overcoming the curse and giving it up to King Jesus. Now skipping over the promises uh, to Adam in Genesis three fifteen through 16, given to Seth in chapter 4, Shem in chapter 5, I'm just going to briefly mention the staggering promises given to Abraham in chapters 12 and following. God told Abraham that his seed Jesus would not only bring blessing to individuals. People focus on that all the time. Okay, that's in chapter 15. He's going to bring blessing to individuals, but also to families. Quote, In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Chapter 28, verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 3. And not just to families, but to entire cities. It says, quote, Your seed will possess the gates of his enemies. Gates were associated with cities. That's chapter 22, verse 17. Not just to families and to cities, but to entire nations. Quote, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Chapter 18, verse 18. And not just to families and cities and nations, but to the entire cosmos. And Paul summarizes this promise to Abraham in these words. For the promise that he would be the heir of the cosmos... That's the word, it's translated world, but it's cosmos. It could be world, it could be universe, you know. was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Well, that's the message of Revelation. Genesis and Revelation are like bookends, and though it looked like Satan had destroyed the cosmos through his rebellion... And Adam's rebellion, Revelation shows that Jesus will defeat all opposition, will continue to rule until all enemies are put under his feet. And 1 Corinthians 15 says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's going to happen in twinkling of an eye. As he's coming back, before he comes back, we're going to be caught up. You know, the, de- the dead will go up first. Will we be caught up with him? That's the last enemy. Well, that implies that every other enemy... Political enemies, scientific, economic, medical, educational will all be put under Christ's feet before the second coming. Before he comes back. Otherwise death is not the last enemy. No wonder Revelation 4 verse 11 has the saints of heaven crying out, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created and then revelation continues to describe what god is going to do in both judgment and in blessing and they worship him they worship him and i have to had to cut out a ton of material probably should have even cut out more but i wanted to show you that revelation's an encouraging book it's not a depressing book it's not a discouraging book the way many people teach it you know, after you read some books on Revelation, you just want to crawl into a hole and wish the world would go away. It's like, why wasn't I born 200 years ago? No, this is a very encouraging uh, book. And Lord willing, we're going to show the prophecies have a very satisfying conclusion to what God started in Genesis. Revelation 12 says that even though the battle to extend Christ's kingdom can sometimes be tough... God's people, quote, overcame him, that is Satan, overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We're going to be seeing that Revelation is a war manual. It is a reconstruction manual for planet Earth, a worship manual, a manual for teaching us to value the application of the law of God to every area of life. And it's my prayer that this sermon series would stir you up to have faith, a faith that expects great things from God and attempts great things God. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray you would stir up our hearts and give us faith and help us to found our faith, not on the newspaper, but to found our faith on the sure and certain promises of your scripture. We love you. We bless you. It is our joy to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.